Greetings, Trinitarians and everyone else. I'm so glad you're here on the channel that loves atheists. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be taking a look at a video by the Prophet of Zod. Now, recently I did another video response to the Prophet of Zod on seven questions for Christians, but in the comments to that video, people informed me that, hey, wait a minute, he's got actually questions specifically for Christian apologists, and so you ought to do a video on that. So I don't plan on um, continually making videos in response to to Prophet of Zod, if you're listening, if you're watching. Uh, but I thought since people mentioned it, I should go ahead and respond to this one as well. So um, I enjoyed uh, taking a look at the material and I'm looking forward to jumping right in. So let's go ahead and by the way, again, uh, I, this is always uh, intended to be directed toward the content, the ideas, not the individuals. I'm sure that the prophet of Zod is a wonderful human being. Um, this is not intended to be specific toward him. But he's going to ask five questions here for Christian apologists. And so we're not going to waste any time. We're just going to jump right into this. And I'll pause as we go along and give my commentary. So here we go. Question number one. Number one. Why should an atheist have to explain things about science to justify not believing in God? We've all heard it a million times. If you don't believe in God, then explain how the universe came from nothing, or atheists think life evolved randomly from single-celled organisms. But this obviously makes no sense for a couple reasons. First off, why do people who don't believe in God have to think the same things about biology or cosmology? People who don't believe in vampires don't share all the same ideas about science, right? They just heard people propose a being exist, didn't find the evidence for it compelling, and thus don't believe. Simple as that. Yet somehow many apologists think not only that atheists will share the same ideas about how the world works, but that the moment someone says they don't believe in God, it suddenly becomes appropriate to ask them all kinds of questions about science. Okay, let me just go ahead and pause there and say a few things. First of all, uh, he's right. Christians shouldn't just assume what a particular given atheist thinks. They should ask them. Out of kindness, I'm going to stifle the uh, propensity to make an uncool joke about his comparison of atheists and vampires. Just think about it for a minute. Uh, but my approach is to ask people how they answer the big questions of life. So I, I ask questions. Don't presume that you know how they will answer. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you'll be wrong. So let them tell you. And I, I want to know what they have to say. So as I mentioned in the last video, I asked them, how do you answer the biggest questions in life? And then listen to them talk about it for a few minutes. I, I want to find out why they are an atheist. Perhaps when they first came to the position that there is no God, or I'm sorry, that they don't have good, or good enough reason to believe that there is a God. I, I want to know that. Ha has it always been that way? Have they never really been a believer? Did it happen at some point? What was that like? I, I want to hear them tell me. So I actually agree with him uh, right off the bat on this. Um, and so, uh, but then he, he moves on to give an example of the sort of thing that he's talking about. And I want to point out that the sort of thing he's talking about, I don't think is actually a genuine quest for answers. So let's go back to him now and hear what he has to say. This was dramatically illustrated in a Facebook post, which I'll replay here from my first Dumb Things video, in which a pastor I used to know said this, Life is another challenge to the atheist. Explain the reproductive process of the desert horned toad one of many examples. How can that evolve? It had to be created that way. There is no possible way it could evolve. Explain the shrinking sun in light of billions of years, the slowing of the rotation of the earth. Explain the rotation of planets and moons that are spinning the opposite way. Of course, this is totally uncalled for. I mean, pretend you and a friend are in a building and you hear a mysterious... Th 
Okay. Uh, now, first of all, yeah, I, I still agree with him because I don't understand why it's inappropriate to talk about science questions with an atheist or to ask an atheist science questions in general. Like in principle, I would think that we should be able to talk if we're having a conversation, a real conversation. Uh, what's what's with these rules? I think we should be able to talk about any issues that might be relevant to worldview discussions and science certainly falls within that realm. Now, I agree with him about this because this person wasn't actually asking a genuine question. This person was speaking rhetorically and asking questions rhetorically in order to take pot shots at atheists. But that's not that's but if we're asking a genuine question about science, why would that be off the table? It may not be the way that I approach things, but I don't get the annoyance. In fact, Many of the atheists I know, I'm not going to say that they're all this way, but many of the atheists I know, in fact, I'm not sure I've ever heard um, an atheist deconversion account where science wasn't brought into it somehow as some part of a reason why they don't believe in God. Um, so, you know, for those of you who champion science and it's all about science and science is such a big deal and you're passionate about science, and I think that's great. Um, why then would it be annoying for someone to ask you questions about science if it's relevant to the discussion? That seems odd. It seems like it might even suggest something. But the very least, I can say this. Um, I don't know why that would be annoying, except if someone was doing it in the kind of snarky way that the person who posted that Facebook message would be asking it. So, um, I, I mean, I guess really, I, I, you know, I kind of don't know why it would annoy you if it was done genuinely. But I agree with you on that point. But now let's get to this analogy that he wants to get to. Thing coming from a locked room. Neither of you know exactly what's causing the noise, right? And this story right, which is why I called it mysterious. I mean, try to keep up, okay? But your friend just tells you it's the ghost of King Louis XIV. You chuckle and say... In case you didn't hear it, he said that, that you hear, you're in a room and you hear something and you don't know what the explanation is and someone comes up with this, it's the ghost of King Louis or whatever. I don't believe you. And he says... Well, then explain everything about how the building's boiler and heating system works, implying that unless you can, you should believe in the ghost of King Louis XIV. Now, of course, this would be absurd. The fact that neither of you know what's causing the noise means you should both admit it and either investigate further or move on. It does not mean that one of you should just make up a guess, then put the other person on the hook. Now, notice he, he's drawing a parallel with Christian apologetics. He's going to say so explicitly in a moment, but he's, he's stacking the deck here saying, um, you're just taking a guess, right? It's, you know, it's almost like he's assuming that the apologist is just taking a guess, and we don't really know. Actually explain stuff before not believing that guess. I think the analogy to Christian apologetics is clear. If someone tells you an invisible spirit being spoke the universe into existence, which I do believe, the next logical step in the conversation is for them to demonstrate their claim, not for them to suddenly start demanding you explain science for them just because you don't believe what they never proved. Yeah, um, all he's really saying here with this boiler example, aside from you know the, the, the comments that are not entire, I mean, they represent his worldview, but not entirely charitable to Christianity or to the Christian apologist, is that the person who's making the claim needs to shoulder the burden of proof. And I actually agree with that. I don't disagree. And if you are, this is why I like arguments and debates between um, Christians and atheists on the definition of atheism that is, the belief that God does not exist, right? That kind of atheist. Because then you both do shoulder a burden of proof because you're both making a claim. 
But I'll grant him that if we're talking about lack of belief styled atheists who don't say, I believe God does not exist, but rather, I just lack a belief. Well, then in such a case, the theist bears the burden of proof. The Christian bears the burden of proof. And I'm happy with that. I'm happy to shoulder the burden of proof and have done in debates because I'm not at all self-conscious about the arguments and evidences that we have. I think we have incredible evidence for the existence of God. And so I'm happy to shoulder that burden of proof. So I'll give that to you. However, I do want to say one thing, and I've been saying it this year on this channel. It's, it just struck me this year. But there are a lot of people that hold the position of a lack of belief styled atheist and therefore don't think they should have to shoulder the burden of proof. When in actuality, they say things that betray that they actually do um, actively disbelieve that God exists or they believe that God does not exist. And they do that by saying th by making comparisons between God and Santa Claus or God and the Easter Bunny or the supernatural and magic and things like that or fairies. These are things that the individual actively disbelieves in, believes do not exist. You believe that Santa Claus and fairies and the Easter Bunny do not exist. And if an, a particular atheist, and I've heard this done too, want to say something like, no, I don't. I lack a belief. I could be convinced. Well, then I just think you're being disingenuous. These are things, these are entities that we believe don't exist. We actively disbelieve in them. And by comparison, by putting God in the same category, you're betraying your own thoughts. And you may not even realize this about yourself, but it's to show that you think of God like you think of these other things that you actively disbelieve in. So um, what I've said is we have kind of the grown-ups table for these sorts of discussions. And I'm perfectly happy with someone sitting at the grown-ups table and saying, I uh, actively disbelieve that God does not exist if they're willing to shoulder their burden of proof. I'm also fine with a lack of belief styled atheist to sit at the table and without mocking in ways that betray that you actually do actively disbelieve, not shouldering the burden of proof, and I'll shoulder the burden of proof. That's perfectly fine too. The problem is if you want to sit at the grown-ups table and you're going to say that you are a lack of belief styled atheist, but then you're going to say things and, and mock in ways. You're mock the mockery doesn't bother me, but if you're going to say things that betray that you do actively disbelieve, or at least there's strong reason to believe so, well, then you, you've, got, you've got an option. You can either drop that mockery and be the lack of belief styled atheist that you're claiming to be and not say things that contradict that, or you can keep up the mockery and, bird, and shoulder your burden of proof. But that's the only caveat that I would put to this. Ultimately, I'm actually happy with, I'm fine with what he says here. We should show the person making the claim is the one who shoulders the burden of proof. So uh, on number one, question number one, we've had some things to say, but ultimately don't disagree really too much. Let's move on to question number two. Number two, how does a person get from the conclusion that the universe's origins are unintuitive to the conclusion that God created the universe? Of course, apologists don't think they're just guessing that God created the universe. They claim to be able to deduce as much through argumentation. Hey, wait, now this is great because a moment ago he said that we, if two people are just guessing. So I guess we could make his thoughts consistent here and give him the benefit of the doubt and say he's expressing that he thinks, right? He thinks we're just guessing, but he knows that we don't view it that way. But even there, I don't know why he would say that we're just guessing. I would think that he should say to be consistent with himself. Well, um, they have an argument. They're not just guessing. I just disagree that their argument is successful or something like that. But anyway, let's continue. The most famous form of this being the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, yes, this syllogism is just riddled with problems. 
The most obvious being that it appeals to our simplified sense of intuition about cause and effect to draw conclusions about aspects of the universe that probably defy our intuition. But that's a lot to dig into here. What I would ask a Christian is, even assuming this argument is both sound and valid, what does it conclude? All it tells us is there was some cause to the universe, one that we would probably infer as highly unintuitive, far different from anything we've seen so far, and likely beyond our imagination. Well, I don't know why you would need to throw in unintuitive there. Why would we presume that that will be the case? I, I, I don't get that. But, but yeah, uh, what were the other things that he said? Let's go back just a little bit here. What, what does he say? We would probably infer it's highly unintuitive, far different from anything we've seen so far, yeah. and likely beyond our imagination. And because uh, Beyond our comprehension, sure. It's so far different from anything we know. It could be literally anything. It couldn't be literally anything or we could run into contradictions. Maybe there's a purely natural reality that lies outside our realm of observation and defies the laws we've used to describe the universe so far. Okay, now this is a common objection that I've seen in the YouTube community that maybe um, the, the cause of this universe, because the Kalam only gets you a cause, right? And I'm happy to grant that. Uh, so, so maybe it's something that stands outside of the physical universe, but is itself natural. It just may have different natural laws. Um, well, here's the problem with that. It's a misunderstanding of how Craig uses the word universe in his argument. When Craig uses the word universe, he doesn't just mean this universe. He means all contiguous physical reality, which means if there is a multiverse or some you know, bigger natural order outside of this physical universe or a vacuum model or a cyclical model or, or whatever, whatever you want to put in there, if there's some nature outside of this physical universe that we're talking about here, then the Kalam applies to that as well. And, we're, and I'm happy to talk about why it applies to that as well. And um, it's, it's pretty simple. You just, in fact, I'll just tell you how to do it so that we don't have to do it here. Just take the responses that we would give as it relates to this physical universe, apply those to the multiverse, because otherwise you're just kicking the can up the street. And so we, you've, got, you've got to deal with that. So that's, um, that, that won't work. Now, he, I think he tries to wiggle out of that by saying maybe it has different natural laws. Okay, but it's not going to have different laws of logic, right? Um, the law of non-contradiction isn't going to be false there, right? So as long as it has the same laws of logic, you're not going to escape the teeth of the argument. So this doesn't serve as a defeater. It fails as a defeater. Maybe space and time as we know it could be the unfolding of some higher dimensional structure. Maybe space and time as we know it could be the unfolding of some higher dimensional structure. I need more specificity. That is incredibly ambiguous. I don't know what you're trying to describe there. And it seems that he's trying to throw out possible explanations that, that could be the case that would serve as defeaters. The first one doesn't work. And with this one, it's too ambiguous to work. I don't know what you're trying to describe. And I think that's partly his point. He understands uh, part of what he's trying to say here is the explanation could be so bizarre that I can't adequately describe it. So it's like this. It's time and space, the unfolding of time and space from some um, other dimensional structure or something. Um, I, maybe there's something there, but, but I need more specificity as to exactly what you're talking about. And if the point is, that's it. I, you can't maybe put it into words. It's ineffable or it's, uh, it's so in unintuitive that we never think of it. Okay, well, we're going to get back to that in just a little while when, we did, when I give my explanation of the sort of response I think we're being given here. But so far, um, I don't think either of these defeaters work. So let's hear what happens next. Now, yes, these are just guesses, 
but unlike apologists, I'm not making the grandiose claim that I can reason my way down to the right gas. No, what you're doing is you're offering what we would call defeaters, but they don't work as defeaters. Much less start describing the origin of the universe's personality or tell you how it wants you to live your life. Okay, now this is really important. I want you to listen to me, Internet. Here, what he has implied is that when is that Christian apologists have taken the Kalam, or typically take the Kalam, and on the basis of the Kalam, argued that they know how God wants you to live your life. I mean, that's what that's what I've just heard. Um, if I'm misunderstanding that, I'm sorry, but I think that was pretty clear. Let me tell you something. I have never once ever heard any Christian apologist do that. It's possible you might find some weird YouTube video that I've never seen before where some apologist is doing that wrongly. But the fact is, what we do, now this is a very similar criticism to what I do typically hear from YouTube um, atheist apologists, is that what we're actually what Christians do is they, they get through the Kalam, and then they take this broad leap to the idea that it's a God, and specifically the Christian God, and specifically from their denomination's understanding of the Christian God, which of course is not what Christian apologists do. What Christian apologists do is a two-step method. They show that God exists, at least the sort of apologist that I am, they show that God exists by way of theistic arguments like the ones that we're discussing in this video and then after they've described this somewhat god of the philosophers without we we haven't said too very much about this god but it is something that we would describe as god and then we go further to provide christian specific arguments like the resurrection case in order to get to the idea that it's the christian god that's how we function and that's how we get the how then should we live sort of answers but I've never heard anyone give the Kalam and say, therefore, boom, this God, now we know how you're supposed to live your life or something. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I, that is just completely, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. And so I wanted to call that out um, when I heard it. So let's, uh, let's continue though. Whoops. Much less start describing the origin of the universe's personality or tell you how it wants you to live your life. Never heard that. The point is that the possibilities are endless, and we should recognize that whatever started the universe, if that's even an adequate way of describing the state of affairs, is currently so far outside our comprehension that using our intuition to even start arriving at an answer is jumping the gun. We don't just use our intuition to arrive at an answer. What we do is we apply the information that we do know, um, and then we formulate that into arguments, and we use logic and reasoning to try and well, do what we do when we try to figure things out. It's just that science isn't, and science is actually involved in Craig's case. He uses science, stuff we know from science in order to make his case. Although he admits, and I agree that philosophy gives you the very best defenses and is all that you really need. But if, if you're just going to, I mean, I, he, maybe he hasn't done this here, but if you're just going to say that science is the only way we can know, well, that would be to cut off other ways of knowing that we have besides science. Um, and, but, but no, we, we don't, we don't just, uh, use our intuition and jump the gun. We use arguments, reason, logic, these sorts of things. This is perfectly illustrated by the part of William Lane Craig's opening debate script that tries making the jump from the universe having a cause to God actually being that cause. There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. Now, as the cause of space and time, this being must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. Moreover, it must be personal as well. Why? Because the cause must be beyond space and time. 
Therefore, it cannot be physical or material. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either an abstract object, like numbers, or else a personal mind. But abstract objects can't cause anything. Therefore, it follows that the cause of the universe is a transcendent, intelligent mind. Thus, the cosmological argument gives us a personal creator of the universe. I consider this Craig's single most embarrassingly transparent and unjustified leap toward a desired conclusion. Think of how many things he just flatly asserts. Of the insane deductions he claims to be able to make about a distant reality he doesn't know the first thing about. I mean, really. Now, he's, he's implying, and I think before he played the clip, he actually said, and if not, I'm, I'm sorry, but I think he said that Craig makes a leap and, and that these are assertions um, in his conclusions about the cause. But it's, it's not at all the way it is. What he's doing is he's saying, okay, we're looking for the cause of time, space, and matter, because that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the universe. And by universe, we mean all contiguous physical reality. So your multiverse, whatever you want to do with that, all that stuff. And he's saying, so the cause of time, space, and matter. So if you find space and time and matter, well, then you haven't found the cause yet because that's part of the thing that we're trying to explain, right? And it can't bring itself into existence. So what we're talking about is the cause of space, time, and physical matter. What does that mean about the cause? The cause is going to be timeless, spaceless, non-material. And there are things like that, perhaps abstract objects and perhaps minds. But it's not a leap. Now, we're going to say more about minds in just a moment. But it's not a leap. It's not just an assertion. He's given you the reasons, the way that he arrives there. And it's really powerful, um, unimaginably, unimaginably powerful. Um, perhaps we could soften that up if it helps you a little bit. We could say something like powerful enough to serve as the cause of the physical universe. Now, you don't have to call that unimaginably powerful. Maybe it's just powerful enough to create the universe. There you go. I mean, that's that's fine. Um, but yeah, we arrive at those those things. He knows the universe's origin had to be immaterial. He knows that the only immaterial things are abstractions and personal minds. Or that there aren't amazing, heretofore unobserved yet natural realities that defy our categories of material and immaterial? Wait, now, hold up here. Um, there might be other things besides abstract objects and minds that, that are immaterial that could serve as the cause? We're, put a pin in that. We'll come back to that. There might be natural realities that defy our categories of material and immaterial. Material and immaterial stand in opposition to each other. So you can affirm a contradiction if you like. But here's, here's the thing that, that I want you to notice. This is what I have in the past referred to as pinhole argumentation. And what it is, and I'm not saying this is what he intends to do, but I think we see it a lot in the YouTube atheist community, which is an understanding that, yeah, this, ar like, this argument could be taken to arrive at the conclusions you're talking about. Maybe he wouldn't even say that, but, but here you've got this argument and I, I see what you're doing with it. And I see the logic and reason behind it, but it could be, it could be, here's, here's the what if -ism. It could be that there are other things besides abstract objects and minds that could serve as the, and I mean, that's, I mean, that could be there. Technically, maybe that's possible. I can't tell you what they are. I have no idea how it's even possible, but maybe, okay, well understand. We're not trying to give you 
Cartesian certainty, right? What we're trying to do with an argument like this is to show that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. He's the best explanation. It's very reasonable and plausible to conclude that God is the explanation. So if you think you can find some little pinhole in the argument where maybe I can wiggle out through that pinhole and say, maybe there's something besides abstract objects and minds that could be the, that has causal powers that could serve as the cause. Um, well, that's, I mean, that, that's fine, but that sounds like, and I'm not accusing you of this prophet of Zod, but I do think that this is indicative when this happens sometimes with people who are thinking this through of someone who's not looking for the truth, because if you're looking at the truth, you're looking for what's likely the explanation. And here, if you found a, a tiny pinhole that may or may not even be there and say, I'm going to wiggle out through that. And therefore I don't have to believe that God exists. That doesn't strike me as someone who's looking for truth. Someone who's looking for truth says, I mean, yeah, I guess possibly there's some way to wiggle out of this, but it really does look strong. It looks like God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. But what about that pinhole? Is there even a pinhole there? I don't think so. Let's give you another reason to believe that the cause of the physical universe is coming into existence needs to be a personal agent, a mind. Here's the reason. Craig didn't give it in the clip that you just played, but it's the reason I give, and it goes like this. If you have a, a state of spaceless, timeless nothingness, then you can't have determinism that, that leads to the cause of the universe. It can't be like a chain of dominoes that leads to the beginning of the universe because determinism can't function if you don't have the passing of temporal moments. And remember, this is a timeless state. It also can't be random because, again, you would need the movement of time for randomness. But whatever the cause would have to be couldn't be random and couldn't be determined. What does that leave? It only leaves one thing libertarian freedom. It would have to be a libertarianly free choice to create the universe. What sorts of things have libertarian freedom? Personal agents do. And so the cause, uh, I see no way to escape this, is a personal agent, a mind. And a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful personal mind is, I think, a great definition of God. Um, but, if, you know, and I don't even see the pinhole there. But if you did find a little pinhole way of escape, like maybe, and this is like, honestly, this is, I don't, I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. I'm just trying to say, this is like, let me, let me put myself up here. I've been, I've been tiny this whole time here. This is like trying to say, okay, look, uh, and I don't think you would grant this argument is great, but I'm looking at the criticisms he's bringing and I'm accounting for those. And other than those, it's like he would say, I mean, I get it. I mean, it does seem powerful. I get it. But here's the thing. Maybe there's something that we haven't even thought of before that we can't articulate what it is that we can't even put into words that we have no way of imagining is even possible. And maybe that thing is, is the explanation. Okay. I mean, I don't think so because I think we've even accounted for that, but maybe, maybe somehow, but is that the most likely thing? Seems like the most likely thing is where the evidence seems to point. And I think we should go with that. So there's my answer so far, but he's not done. There are so many things we have yet to discover to gradually incorporate into our understanding of the universe. Yet instead of exploring and observing, meanwhile admitting what he doesn't yet know, Craig pretends he can solve the most amazingly vast, complex mysteries of the universe by sitting around pontificating like a jack. 
I got off on a rant there, but I think it's worth using the audacity of Craig's assumptions as a cautionary tale for Christians. Watch Craig over and over in that clip. Catalog what he actually says. And come to terms with the fact that this gush of verbal diarrhea represents one of Christianity's most illustrious attempts at going from a cause to God. Based on this, I would ask Christians, do you really feel qualified to jump to these kinds of conclusions? If you didn't already believe in God, would you even dream of deducing such things? How many other mysteries of the universe have ancient people been tempted to attribute to bigger conscious agencies, and how many times has this conclusion ended up being correct? You know, here, here's the thing about this. First of all, do, do we feel, whoops, I was already up there. Do we feel um, qualified to think these things through? Yeah, we don't check our brain at the door. It doesn't, the great thing about this argument is while you can put scientific rigor behind it too, I don't do that very often because I'm not a scientist. These things are built upon philosophical categories that you're aware of that you have access to in your own thinking. That's why we're able to talk about it the way we are right now. I've said many times that it's simple enough that a six-year-old could understand it and complex enough, if you want it to be, that PhDs can argue about it, physicists can argue about it, philosophers. It, it's, but, but, um, but what I hear here is this naturalism of the gaps. Maybe one day we'll come up with an explanation um, and it'll be so surprising and, and it'll, it'll uh, circumvent all of this. Yeah, I don't think so. In this case, I don't think so. I think this is as close to a slam dunk for God's existence as we can possibly get. And yes, I'm aware that I'm saying that and I mean it. And I've said it many times. This is an incredibly powerful argument for God's existence. And um, looking for a pinhole to try to escape from it is not what seekers of truth should do. We shouldn't be pinhole thinkers. We shouldn't be pinhole arguers. We should recognize that what we have leads us to the plausible suggestion that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Now, that took up a lot of the video. His other questions don't go on that long. So let's move on now to one that has to do with design. Number three, what would an undesigned universe look like to someone within that universe? This is a pretty simple question, but I think it's worth getting a Christian to consider. Apologists love saying the universe appears designed. But this relies on us as small parts of that universe, looking at it from the inside, to conclude a lot of things about its workings by generalizing from how we alter parts of it. This leads to all kinds of tricks of perception, the most obvious being articulated by the puddle analogy. That okay, um, if you're not familiar with what the puddle analogy is, the puddle analogy basically says that we're like a puddle of water where or we're more specifically like the water in a puddle of water, um, where you have a hole in the ground, you know, or a, a pothole or something on the road, and it has these weird shapes and, and angles and stuff. And the water, obviously, as water would do, fills up all those crevices and, and everything. Well, if the water puddle suddenly became conscious and could think about its existence, it might say something like, well, look, I am perfectly designed to fit right in this pothole. I mean, it just absolutely fits right around all of my bizarre dimensions. When in reality, we know that the water, the, the, the water in the pothole is adapted to its environment, right? It fills out to the creases and the corners and all those kinds of things. And there's nothing um, all that interesting uh, about that, right? And so the comparison is, well, look, that's how we as humans are as beings in this universe. It may seem amazing to us. But we're just fitted to the environment. We just filled into the environment that we're in. And so, of course, it's going to look like it's finely tuned for us. 
But here's the problem with that. And there's been a lot of people who've made videos and responses and written about the puddle analogy more than I think actually they should, because I don't, this to me is a horrible, horrible analogy. Uh, really, I, I don't think it deserves much more than the statement that I'm about to make. And that statement is simply this. Any old pothole can fill up with water into all its dimensions, but not any old universe can sustain life. And that's where the analogy breaks, breaks hard, breaks early, and breaks completely. When we look at the universe, you can change the variables of the universe very slightly and you will not have a life permitting universe. I've gone over design stuff in the past, so I'm not going to spend too much time dealing with that right now. But I will point you to somewhere where you can get something that's actually more sophisticated on this than I'm probably qualified to give. Um, and that is, um, let's see. And that is, I would tell you to check out Luke Barnes, cosmologist, when he was on Capturing Christianity with Cameron Bertuzzi. The link is in the description. And there um, he explains how messing with the variables only slightly makes the universe uninhabitable for any kind of life. And that's the important feature here that I think we need to remember. So, all right, um, let's continue with what he has to say. We'll listen to misunderstanding patterns or aspects of it that work to our advantage. But if the universe appears designed, the first thing I'd ask is designed for what? Most often the answer will be for life. But as we've all heard a thousand times, practically the entire universe would instantly kill us. And we even have to struggle to survive on the small portion of our own planet that's even remotely hospitable to us. On top of that... So he thinks that the universe doesn't seem designed for life because most of it doesn't sustain life. Yeah, but this part does, right? The part we're in right now. That's why this argument has never made, uh, th this argument has never had any teeth. It's not the least bit convincing to me. Besides, it probably won't come as a huge shock that uh, most Christians believe, all Christians believe in eschatological things. This is where we would get into theology. We could talk about that, that we actually believe in a future where most of human history is going to be in the future. And there's no reason to suspect that we won't continue to explore the cosmos as we are right now. And the universe as it is, um, as hostile to life as most of it is, as he rightly says. Interestingly, that serves as a great canvas for us to explore and who knows what God has in store for us to do with our universe in the future. The fact is, it's like saying the universe wasn't finely tuned for life. Why not? Does life exist in it? Well, yeah, it exists here, but it doesn't exist over here. Well, okay, but it does exist, right? Because it's finely tuned for life. Not to mention um, Gonzalez and um, I never can't remember the other guy's name. They wrote the book, The Privileged Planet. We're also in exactly the right spot, a very specific spot in the universe where we're able to observe the rest of the universe. So it's an amazing, amazing thing. So, I, you know, I, I, I've, never, I've never gotten this argument. It's always been bizarre to me. Also, it commits what is known as um, what, what has been referred to as a divine psychology move. And this one and um, was the last one, too. Uh, maybe. Um, I don't know. But it, it commits this this design, this uh, divine psychology where what you're doing is the atheist. And this maybe you don't get the humor in this that I do. But the atheist is is conveying that they know the thinking of the God that they don't believe is real. So well, they know that non-existent God so well 
that they know what he would do if he did exist. And if he did exist, this God that they don't believe is real, they know him so well that they know that he would put life elsewhere in the universe and all throughout the universe, and he would do it basically their way. And that, to my mind, is it doesn't make any sense. I don't know how you would possibly get there. Divine psychology is a bad move. You don't even always understand. I mean, kids don't even understand the actions of their parents and you'd expect to always understand the actions of God and why he does things the way he does. I don't get it. Since the modern Christian version of the designer is all powerful and created everything from scratch, we must acknowledge that for every solution he designed, he also designed the problem. For example, before God fine-tuned the earth to provide us oxygen, comfortable temperatures, and food, he first created us specifically so that we'd die without them. Does that make any sense at all? Why would he build us with unnecessary vulnerabilities that he actually had to imagine himself and then adjust the universe to accommodate them? This self-defeating design process is also illustrated by a point I've made before which is that an antelope only had to be intelligently designed to escape a cheetah because the cheetah had been intelligently designed to chase the antelope. So proposing that God designed the universe leads to more problems than it solves. Wait, hold up. I, and I'm trying not to be snarky. I, honestly, I like this guy, and I think he's approaching things in more or less a, a friendly way. So, again, none of this is directed at you, Prophet Abzada. You seem like a wonderful guy. But you're asking why would God develop a circle of life? and require that humans have to eat and breathe in the environment that he created for them? Is this where we're at, really? That's the criticism? If God existed, he would make us all invulnerable, perpetual motion machines, I guess? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, I think the simple answer for why he did that was because the way he did is because that's the way he wanted to do it. And I'm not sure why we would think that he shouldn't do it that way. Again, the divine psychology thing, right? Um, you don't think that God would have a circle of life that way, where animals, one animal is designed to be good at getting away and another animal is designed to give chase. And you, you don't think that, that that's the way it should go. Okay, that's the way God wanted to do it. Do you know the mind of the God that's not real so well that you know how he would do it if he did exist? I mean, that that to me just goes around in circles. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, let's finish out this question. Painting a comical picture of someone who repeatedly undermined himself in totally unnecessary and illogical ways. Unless that's the way he wanted it, to have a circle of life and with humans eating and breathing in the environment that he created for them to eat and breathe within. So considering how weird and convoluted the design of our universe is, I would challenge a Christian to consider what any undesigned universe weird and I would say um, compelling and amazing and beautiful look like especially to beings who lived within that universe, had adapted to it, and were used to its workings. Okay, so here we, we come back to this again. I mean, this, this is the initial question, on, well, with this one. Um, what would an undesigned universe look like to someone within that universe or to a being living in that universe? You realize that this, that's to beg the question. What we're arguing is that an undesigned universe wouldn't have beings living in it asking those questions because it couldn't sustain life because this one is designed for life because statistically it is prohibitively unlikely that you would have any form of life in a universe where the variables are different. Um, but 
you know, again, if you'd like to hear a cosmologist explain how messing with the variables only slightly makes the universe uninhabitable for any kind of life, check out Luke Barnes' explanation on capturing Christianity link in the description. All right, let's move on to number four. Number four. If you believe that God is perfect or all-knowing, how did you arrive at this conclusion? This question very succinctly demonstrates just how much Christians flatly assume about God. To conclude that a being is perfectly good, you'd not only have to have a concept of good that's independent of that being, an idea that in and of itself is problematic for many Christians. Well, but, hold up. So he's going to get into morality in the next question, too, and he's going to touch on it a little bit here, because it seems like that's what he means by perfect here. Um, although when we're talking about the perfections of God, there's actually multiple ways in systematic theology we're approaching that or could mean that. Um, but, but, but the question is, if you believe that God is perfect or all-knowing, how did you arrive at this conclusion? Now, this is where I want to—this is a fair question, I think, that atheists might ask. I mean, th these are all good questions, but this is a fair question that I, I don't want any snark in this. I, I think it's important to put out. We as Christian apologists do not intend or think— we don't intend to convey and we don't think that every specific aspect of theology and doctrine that we believe needs to have independent philosophical, extra biblical or scientific arguments in its favor before we believe it. Right. We believe there's are good arguments for God's existence, for the resurrection of Jesus, for a few other things, including reasons to believe that the Bible should be authoritative for our lives. Okay, now I've got other videos on that. We've got a whole playlist on the Bible and what we think about it and why on the YouTube channel. So you can go check that out. But, but so we provide those. And then beliefs about God's perfections and God's, uh, some of those you can get to with philosophical arguments, but I don't. Arguments about God's perfections and what he knows, whether he's all-knowing, those are things that we get from the authority of Scripture. We don't, we don't build independent arguments for all of those things. Uh, we'll have debates about them and may have interesting things to say and things that are consistent with external things from, from God's Word. But um, we, that's not how we do this. We believe that there's good reason to believe God exists and that Jesus rose from the dead and that based on the resurrection and a few other things, um, we believe that we can, you, at the very least, that the Scripture is authoritative. And so for that reason, we get that information from there. So it's, it's pretty simple, and it kind of gets around some of what he's trying to do here have to judge that being based on your own concept of good. To whatever extent you came to trust that being, you would do so because it lived up to your expectations, and you would, consciously or not, continue evaluating what it did. This thought process belies the very idea of concluding a being is perfect. In fact, I'd say that even forming a complete and consistent ideal of perfect good by which to judge this being is not only impossible but pretentious. Just try describing any form of perfection in any level of detail. In the course of trying, you'll probably end up changing your mind, running into paradoxes, and generally just arriving at a lot of uncertainty, right? Now, see, here's, here's the thing. The thing, and this comes up, I think, in the next question. I only watched the video once before I came to do this. I, I th the thing is, we're saying that God, the Christian perspective is that God put moral values and duties that they're built into us, that, that, that it's a part of, that we know those intuitively, that we're aware of those, and that those match match him, match how his nature, right? So there's already something there that's consistent that way. How could we ever know or describe? 
let me give you uh, an example. Uh, so this, I might get a little platonic here. When you think about Plato's world of the forms, what you want to think about is something like this. So you don't, it is, it is, it is reasonable to say you may have never seen something that is perfectly equal, like a board that is cut equally down the middle. You may have never seen that. And why may you have never seen that? Because in some small way in this physical universe, there's going to be one particle more on one side of the board than the other. It's, it's not going to be perfectly equal. Now, maybe in a lab somewhere they can get it down, but I mean, there's still fundamental particles, you know, that, that go really far down. So it's, it's still, it's really unlikely you've ever seen perfect equality, a board cut right down the middle, perfectly equal. So let's say you've never seen that in reality. Do you still have an idea of perfect equality? Do you still know it? Do you, if I put, if I put the cut two thirds down the board, wouldn't you know that that is not equal? And that as you move closer to the middle, it's more equal and that you can judge equality in more or less ways like that, even though in physical reality, you've never seen perfect equality. You still have the concept of it. And when Plato might say that that's because this perfect equality comes from the world of the forms, we don't have to say that. We can just say we, it's baked in. We understand this idea of perfect equality. The same could be said of perfect circularity. You've probably never seen an absolutely perfect circle, but yet you know when things are more or less circular. Uh, because you have this knowledge, even though you've never seen it, we can still know what goodness is, what oughtness is, what rightness is, what perfect goodness would be, um, without ever having actually seen it in that same way, except perhaps we would say in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, but, but you still have that awareness and what we would say God put into us as an awareness of morality and moral perfection will match um, at least on, on the generalities will match. We're imperfect people, so we can be flawed in what we think is good or bad, but we generally agree, right? And he's going to use that later to build his own moral system. But we, we generally know these things because we think God put that on our heart, so to speak, that he baked that into it and it's going to match his good nature. So that's how that works. That's understandable because we're just human. And perfection might not even exist, except as a vague abstraction that quickly becomes paradoxical. Yet for all their claims to be fallible, fallen, imperfect, limited beings, Christians consider themselves amazingly astute at recognizing perfection when they see it. The problem with determining that God's... And I've never seen something perfectly equal, but I know what equality is. I've never seen perfect circularity, but I know what circularity is. Knowing is even more daunting. Unless you know everything, how can you determine whether someone else does? If there were something God didn't know, how would you know it? And how would he know he didn't know it? Yeah, so how God knows everything, that's the part that we get from Scripture, right? That's where we build out these arguments that then validate our uh, suggestion that we can rely on Scripture, then at least that it's authoritative. And then we get, and then from there, we get to these theological truths. So that's how we do that. That may be unexpected, but we don't build out. This is important. We don't we don't build out these um, independent arguments bereft of Scripture for every little doctrinal perspective or theological issue that we come upon. We we do that to get the foundation right to show others why they should believe this is true, and perhaps to remind ourselves. But then when we get to the Bible, we utilize the Bible that way. So that's that's how that goes. All right, let's move on to the last thing, which is morality. How would the existence or non-existence of a God make morality fundamentally different? 
This question, of course, addresses moral arguments for God, as well as the often repeated assertion that, say it with me, everybody, without God, we have no basis for morality. Uh, actually, that's incorrect. Without God, say it with me, we have no objective basis for morality. You could have a basis for morality. You could subjectively dis- decide on one. You know, you could you could just say, hey, you know what? Um, maybe uh, just like this is how others have put it. Maybe it's like a game of chess, right? We subjectively create this game with subjectively chosen rules. But then once you have that, there are objectively better or worse ways to get to that subjectively chosen goal of winning chess. So there, so that's how that works. But if I don't care about chess, there's nothing objective about the rules of chess in, in nature or anything. And so the same with building out a moral system, you can, you can subjectively arrive at a goal that you think is good, like human flourishing or the well-being of others or, um, something, something like that. But the thing is within your system, that's a subjectively chosen goal and you may then there may be objectively better or worse ways to achieve that goal. That that's perfectly fine. But as long as the system itself is subjectively chosen, the goal is subjectively chosen a matter of opinion, let's say, um, even if it's the opinion of a lot of people, even if it's the opinion of most people, that's still subjective. And then you have no grounding, no objective grounding for saying to someone outside of the system who doesn't like your system and doesn't care about your system that they value statement here should care about your system because what they should do in your opinion is just based on what you like and the people in your system like but it has no objective grounding and they can build out their own moral system that may involve tyranny and they can't say to you that you should be in their system the only way you get a system that stands above those systems and you get a universal ought a universal should that should be binding for everyone whether anyone believes in it or not is if you have an objective basis for morality. And you only get that from the nature of God. That's the important thing there. So let's let him continue. Somehow, a lot of Christians think that the very concept of morality hinges on God's existence. But if you look at what morality actually is, a concept of right or wrong behavior, and start seriously pondering what makes things right or wrong, you have to start wondering how the existence of a higher being has anything to do with it. The way he has something to do with it is he's the only way you have an objective basis. You can have a basis and people can care about it or not, but he's the only way you have an objective basis. And in case you're the kind of person who says, well, maybe we just don't have an objective basis. I think everyone knows that there is an objective basis, despite what they say or have convinced themselves of because um, they live their lives as though they do. So that position is not livable. And secondly, a good argument will be made of premises that have what's called plausibility. That premise is more likely to be true than false. And so my immediate experience of objective morality, that's a to torture children for the fun of it, because that's always what comes up, that that's wrong, that it's wrong to objectively, uh, that it's objectively wrong to torture children for the fun of it or to do a genocide or whatever. My immediate awareness of that There is no argument that is going to have premises. Any argument brought to show me that morality is not objective is going to contain one or more premises that are less plausible than my immediate experience of morality and yours too. So uh, there's more we could say about that, but I I think that's um, an important thing. So so with that, then, then what does God play in this? Well, he's the only way you get that, that objective morality. In the end, acting morally 
doing the right thing, doing what you ought, or however you want to phrase it. Okay, acting morally, doing the right thing, doing what you ought. These are all value statements and duty statements, statements of values and duties. They require some sort of a objective foundation, not just a subjective foundation. Boils down to deferring immediate gratification for your long-term good and the good of those around you. Seriously, try to think of any defensible concept of morality that doesn't in the end come down to that. Okay, he says that, that any moral system is going to come down to delaying gratification for the long-term good of you and those around you. Okay, first of all, says who? Why should any particular person care that you think that? If they're not in your bubble of people who have subjectively decided on that as a goal, you can't say to anyone outside of the bubble they should do this, at least not in a way that's meaningful. You can say it to other people who have already adopted that goal because they're in your bubble. But you understand that bubble is just stuff you like. You've decided on your on the, the morality that you like that this is what you should do and that's what you shouldn't do and this is good and this is bad. But to anyone outside of that, there's nothing like in the universe that says they should care what you think. There's no should. There's no good. There's no bad. This is just stuff, matter in motion. But in fact, they have their own moral system that, again, says you can do a genocide or something. But if you have God, you do have a meta system. You have an objective foundation for good and bad, right and wrong. And I think that's all pretty darn important. Now, I will say this. Even if you're right um, that delaying gratification for the long-term good of you and those around you um, is a thing, is, is like a good part of the centerpiece of a moral system, that you recognize that might be one of the goals of a good system doesn't speak to whether one should follow that system. And all it really might mean is that you recognize a meta good, that that's a good thing, but you still can't account for it. And so you need an objective foundation for good in order to get that meta good on which your subjectively chosen thing is to be based. So anyway, hope that helps. At least something similar. When people think God's involved in this, it's for a couple main reasons. First, he has greater insights into the consequences of our actions, and thus is better prepared than a human ever could be to instruct us in how to behave morally. I mean, that might be true, but I don't know that that's why I think God comes up in this discussion. Also, you know, he's like super strong and can enforce moral behavior. And while I guess such a being might be handy, all it would be doing is helping us navigate issues that would still exist in a godless universe. It would be doing nothing to define morality, or even to have any impact whatsoever on what morality is. Second, of course, is the idea that God defines morality. Basically, morality, by definition, is whatever is in God's nature. Of course, all this does is shift the definition of morality from, uh, any actual intelligible concept to the preferences of another being. Notice what he did right there. He conflates God's nature with God's preferences. The subtle distinction is important. The importance of God's involvement in morality is that his nature serves as the objective grounding of these things. He brings up the Euthyphro dilemma without going into it there um, much, but the distinctions like that are important when we go to talk about something like the Euthyphro dilemma. The problem with this is that God's nature would either, one, be such that his preferences align with the constructive, empathetic behaviors we associate with morality, or two, be indifferent to or even set in opposition to those behaviors, 
meaning he'd be what we consider cruel or uncaring. If it's number one, it's just by coincidence, and if it's number two, he wouldn't be moral in any useful sense of the word. So either way, we have an idea of morality that's separate from God, that he does not. I'm not, that was confused. What, what we say is that the morality comes from his nature, but that it's baked into us that our awareness of that. It may be imperfect because we're imperfect people, but we have an awareness that matches his nature um, and that we should strive to act morally as a result. Although it should be said that won't get you anything salvific on Christianity. You can't do enough good works in order to be fit for the kingdom. Um, that's all about trusting and receiving Jesus because we're all sinners. Define, and that would exist in a universe with or without him. I guess in the end we run into euthyphro dilemma type stuff. In light of this, I would ask a Christian how God is important to, or even has anything to do with, the actual concept of morality. Because he serves as the objective basis for it, and the only one fit for that role. If he's an enforcer, humans can be too. Yeah, so he's just going over, we've already answered that. So, um, anyway, uh, I, I think uh, we have, let's see, I can't get back to, there, there we are. There I am. Um, so I think in the end, we have some questions and we have some answers there. Um, I hope that those have been helpful to you. I won't uh, drag out the ending, but I will say um, nothing but love for Prophet of Zod. This is the channel that loves atheists, but um, I think I, th I hope that was ironing some things out in your thinking. Um, all right. So uh, I'd love to have you subscribe to the channel. You know, we have a lot of people that um, watch the show that are not subscribers. It really does help us out. It doesn't cost you anything. And at present, we're almost to 10,000 subscribers, at which time I think a couple of new features on YouTube become unlocked for us. So it'd be really helpful if you would just subscribe. Um, you're a, if, even if you're an atheist and you don't like me as an individual, hopefully this is a community where you have discussions or uh, kill some time while you're mowing the lawn listening to something. So um, just uh, all I'm asking is just to click that subscribe button. And if you're really willing to go above and beyond, you can help us out by supporting and partnering with us at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. There's a link on this video and the link is also in the description. Um, so listen, I've enjoyed this. I hope that this has been fun for you like it has for me. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.